you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me in them to Psalm 86. Um, I wanted to let you know that if you're new to Manhattan, um, the next probably eight or ten days may seem a little strange to you if you've been here for a few weeks this summer. Um, as we adjust to school time schedule, uh, public schools in the area will be opening, on, I believe, on Wednesday. So we have teachers and students and parents who are varying, with varying degrees of eagerness looking forward to Wednesday happening. Um, we also have the, what the university calls soft move-in is today, so sorority girls and band students are moving in today. So you may see some lines of cars, you may see frantic parents at Walmart or around town. Be patient with them, they'll be okay, you'll be okay. Um, and then the dorms open officially next Saturday, and so life will get fun really quickly. Um, and it really is exciting to see students come back, and it's good to see many of you back already, so it's good to have you with us. On the way to church this morning, my daughter asked me, Dad, what are you going to preach about today? And I said, prayer, which is about as general an answer that I could have given. And she said, well, what about prayer, Dad? And I said something to the effect of praying when it, doesn't often make, when it may not seem to make sense to pray. And that's where I want to go this morning, looking at Psalm 86. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to look with me. I'm going to read the whole of the psalm. This is the last of our summer psalm series. Each, the last few summers, we've been making our way through um, a variety of the psalms as a way to consider and reflect upon the Christian life. And we do that for the last time this morning, we'll begin a new series next week. Um, but I re- uh, here now as I read from Psalm 86, I'll read the entirety of the psalm. Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All of the nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not see you, set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give me your strength. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray one more time as we ask God to bless the reading and understanding of his word. Father, Father, we come to you in prayer again this morning. May this never be an act merely of ritual for us. We ask you, we come to you in prayer to ask that you would meet us through your word this morning. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would lead us to the place where you are, the place where you dwell, that we might know you through this, your word, and that we might walk away changed this morning. 
Father, keep far from our thoughts the pressure to change or to fix ourselves. But teach us in fresh ways, even this morning, what it is to approach you to seek your change in us. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was in junior high and high school, my mom and I had an ongoing, we'll call it a conversation or discussion, regarding the cleanliness of my room. It was not that it was too clean, if you're wondering. And at the center of it, now, there were problems. You know, I had a drum set set up in my room, and clean clothes went on the drum set, dirty clothes went on the floor. I had a great system. It worked really well for me. Um, but, but at the center of the discussion was actually whether or not my bed was being made, and most mornings it was not. And my logic, in my mind, was unflappable, right? I'll be sleeping there tonight again. Why should I make it this morning? You're not, you don't have to go in there. Why should I have to clean up my room? That was the typical conversation. And again, yes, I was in high school when that happened, and I'm still learning these lessons today. But in my mind, it made sense. And I, I learned later, of course, that somebody once said, and my wife used to say to me, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm not going to make my bed because I'm going to sleep in there tonight again, and it'll just be unmade again. Why on earth should I do this? I think I'm learning. I'd like to think that I'm learning that there is a point to this, that there is a point to keeping your room clean. And if, nothing, if no other reason is, for me at least at the time, and what I reflect on now and, and with a house full of people now, what I realize is if you don't keep your stuff clean, it's just going to get worse. And it's going to be more and more of a headache to try to sludge through and get through all the stuff that's on the floor and spread out. So let's work together and keep our rooms clean and keep our stuff picked up. It makes sense to me now, but at the time, all I could see was, Bob, you're asking me to do something that I'm going to undo the same night. The same thing's going to happen day after day after day after day. Why bother? What will it accomplish? What was the point? Now, I start there because we twist that, I think, as Christians. We hear that phrase, doing, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I wonder for us if that's not what I, part of what I want to call for us this morning, the dilemma of prayer. The, the dilemma is this, we pray and we pray and we pray, and there may be specific things in our lives about which we are praying, and we see very to, to little to no change whatsoever. And we fall in this dilemma of saying, why would I bother why would I do something and keep doing something if it doesn't seem to work in our estimation, if it doesn't seem to affect change in the world? And interestingly, as the more I reflected on this the past few weeks, the more I thought about a lot of us in this room in some ways have a theological justification. We can look at the Bible and say, the Bible says that God is in control of all things. I'm not going to change his will. I'm not going to change his plans. So why would I even pray? Jesus himself said that are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even an insignificant little sparrow is governed by the sovereign, powerful, all-encompassing will of the Father in heaven. I cannot change his will. In fact, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we have reasons in our minds not to pray. But if we're honest, on our maybe not so much of our best days, we don't think about our theological reasons. We look at the rest of our lives, 
and we realize that we don't pray or we struggle with prayer because we're distracted. Because there's always something that's drawing our attention. Some of the things are of higher value than others, but there's always something that needs to be done, always something we need to give ourselves to. We're distracted. If we're honest, though, we may also feel that God seems distant to us. That God seems far away, like he doesn't hear, because we seem to be praying over and over again. As a friend of mine once said, it feels like I'm just praying to the ceiling and the prayers are bouncing back at me. But there are other times when we just, if we're honest, we just look at our hearts and realize our hearts are just deadened to the things of God. Why would I want to stop and pray to him? Why bother? What would it accomplish? So what I want us to consider this morning, because what we see in Psalm 86 What I want to suggest this morning is that what we see is that David models for us how to face those realities in our lives. How to face the reality of of deadened hearts, of distracted lives, of feeling like God is distant. I want to suggest that this is a way to pray. It's not the only way. There are 149 other psalms, not to mention a myriad of other prayers in the Bible that give us direction and instruction But what I want us to consider this morning in Psalm 86 is that this may be a way to face this dilemma of prayer, to face these realities. Because I think, as as I hope we'll see, it seems that David might even be able to relate to some of those things that we bring to God as we struggle to pray. So as we begin with verse 1, what is it that we see? The first thing that I want you to hear, there's kind of three main ideas that I want to tell you this morning. The first main idea is simply this. What David models for us, what he instructs us, what he calls us to, is to actually pray the dilemma that we feel. To run to God, to pray to him, to speak to him about those realities that maybe make us distracted and make him seem distant and that make our hearts seem deadened. Look at verse 1. Look at where he begins in the very first word in probably your translation. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. And then jump down to verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. I wonder if David feels like he's not being heard. Because in these two verses early in the psalm, he says, God, I need you to listen to me. Incline your ear. Bend your ear. Come here. Come closer, God. Because I need to know that you can hear me, is what he's praying. Stretch out your ear to me. Give ear. He's speaking in very human terms of the God who is everywhere, who is over all things. And yet David finds himself speaking, God, come closer. Some time ago, I remember reading an article in a news magazine about an earthquake. I believe it was in Turkey. It's been a long, long time. And and they talked about what the rescue efforts were looking like after this earthquake had devastated this major city. And what had happened, what was happening was um, crews were coming in, big machines were coming in, they were bringing in search and rescue dogs, and there were, there were crews all over the place, carefully, meticulously digging through the rubble, looking for any signs of life. But the article went on to describe the situation that, to say that this, that every so often, everything would stop. The dogs would stop, the machinery would stop, the crews would stop talking to each other. And the people would simply get down on their hands and their knees and put their ear to the ground to listen. To listen for anything. Any scratching, any sound of a a voice calling out to them, anything whatsoever. They would simply get down on their hands and knees and listen. 
That's what David is asking of God to do. Because he's looking at his life, and as we'll see, things seem to be in not good straits. He says early on that he's poor and needy, and he doesn't define it more than that. He's in a place of need. And he's saying, God, I need you to come closer because I need to know that you hear me. But David, interestingly, is asking for more than sympathy here. If we keep reading, look at verse 2. He says, preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Now, when David says, I am godly, he's not boasting in his excellence, in his perfection. What he's saying is, God, I am someone who has known your grace and known your faithfulness. You are the only one that I can cry out to because I know that you will hear me. And he prays for God to act. He prays for God to preserve his life and indeed to save him. Later on, he asks that God would be gracious to him in verse 3. And if nothing else, prayer is more than asking God for a sympathetic ear. Prayer is asking God to act, to do something in his world, to do something in our lives. It is approaching God that we cannot see through our words and asking him to do something. It is what David is asking. Now, there's one more thing that I want us to see in this first section. Now look at verse 4. Because in the midst of all of this, he says to God, gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Interesting, isn't it? He's poor and needy. He's having to pray, it sounds like, for the very sustaining of his very existence, of his very life. And yet what he prays is that God would cause him to rejoice. That God would give him delight. That God would give him joy. Some of us need to know that that's an okay thing to pray. Because we are, by, by nature or by habit, melancholy of sorts. And what we hear David in his time of need, he's actually asking God to bring him joy, to bring him delight. Beloved, I want you to see this call to pray the very dilemma that you feel as an invitation of God. Not to have to clean yourself up before you turn to him, before you ask him for help. Not to feel the pressure to have everything all figured out before you pray. What's fascinating about the way this psalm unfolds is, we're not told initially what the problem is, other than I'm poor and needy and I need you to save me and I need you to preserve my life. We simply hear David, as he says in verse 7, he's in the day of trouble and he calls upon God. You don't have to know why. You don't have to know what's going on to pray. The dilemma that you feel to have it all figured out, to, understand, to know why is God doesn't, why does he not seem close to me? What's wrong? You don't have to know the answer to that before you even ask the question. But we feel that pressure, don't we? Maybe you feel the pressure of showing up here this morning like, I have to put on my happy face because that's what's expected of me. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us would say that's not expected of you, but I know what it's like to live in that place where we think that that's expected of us. You don't have to have it all figured out. David clearly does not. And from the depths of his being, he simply cries out for help. These words can be helpful for us, and I pray that they would be helpful for us. It's easy for us to think that we must be right before God will help. But this is an invitation to seek God's help in order that we might know what is right and in order that we might know what is true. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this may seem strange to you because of presuppositions that you bring, because of the assumptions that you bring. 
But what I want you to hear just briefly in a few verses is this is actually one of the dominant themes of Scripture. That we don't have to fix ourselves to run to God. That it is by grace that He pursues us and invites us to call out to Him. Remember, He says there, in, in, look at verse 5, He says, He's abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. All that He's asking is for us to call upon Him. And He, is about, he promises to be abounding in steadfast love. Jesus Himself said, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. He doesn't say, go figure out your rest, and then, you can, then we can have a conversation. He says, come to me when you are weary. When you can't keep going, come to me. Jesus, another point in his ministry, said simply this in John chapter 3, of maybe a familiar verse, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. You don't have to figure out eternal life before you come to Jesus. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. And then in Romans chapter 10, quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, the Apostle Paul, simply says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus is that we don't save ourselves and then run to God for help. That out of our need, out of feeling poor, out of feeling empty, out of feeling weary, we call out with our last breath and the promise is that He will answer us. Beloved, if you feel the dilemma of prayer this morning, I invite you to pray that dilemma. Pray your questions. Pray your hurt. Pray your pain. Pray your frustration. If praying for you even needs to start with sitting in silence, then start there. But run to God and pray the dilemma. The psalm takes an interesting turn in verse 8, which brings me to the second thing that I want to say this morning. Because I think what David, not only does he invite us to lead, does he invite us to pray the dilemmas of our life and to pray the dilemma of prayer, he actually invites us to pray doctrine, to pray true things about God as a part of this process. Notice what he says beginning in verse 8. He says to God, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Do you see what's packed into three verses? Do you see the scope of time and space and eternity that David fits into these three verses? He prays about the uniqueness of God. He says it twice. He says at the beginning of verse 8, there is none like you. And then at the end of verse 10, you alone are God. In the second part of verse 8, he speaks of the works of God in creation, the wonderful things that he has done, which is the Bible's way of speaking about things like taking the Red Sea and parting it so that his people might walk through on dry land. And speaking to Moses through a bush that's burning, yet it's not consumed. And raising people from the dead. All of it is referenced here. He speaks in the first part of verse 9 of the creation of humanity, all the nations that you have made. There is no person on this earth that was not made by God and is made in His image. He goes on to speak of the promise of eternal restoration that at the end of time, all the nations will come and worship worship Him because everyone on this planet, everyone that has ever existed, will know that He alone is God. This is truth that David is speaking to God. This is the reality that Jesus bumped into in his ministry. Because he had this habit of of making claims. Things like declaring people would be forgiven of their sins. 
And the right response to that is, wait a minute, Jesus, who can forgive sins but God alone? And we can hear Jesus saying to himself, that's right. I alone am God. He does just that. But there's, a, there's this, and, and part of what, what follows this is there's this dominant theme that shows up that time and again in verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 7 and verse 13 and verse 15 and verse 17, the reality is that who this God that he's praying to, who he is, matters to David. That's why doctrine matters. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we read books on theology. That's why we discuss the realities of who God is because who God is matters. And what we're doing as we pray is we're asking God to be who he is. Because we need, to, we need help seeing more clearly. We pray doctrine in part to see God more clearly. To be reminded that he alone is God. That he is over all things. And that he is at work in this world. Some months ago, I got a new set of contacts, and it was a new experience for me. I have an astigmatism that means I have to wear gas permeable contacts, and if you've ever put pieces of plastic in your eye, it's not always the funnest experience, and for many years, I had trouble because my eyes would wear out easily, and they'd get tired or dry, um, and they just would not adapt to the, to the, the gas permeable lenses. Well, I went to an eye doctor not too long ago, and we tried, she said, let's try something new, and so a totally different approach. Um, there's still pieces of plastic in my eye, but they're bigger, and there's a saline solution in the midst of it. But, but as I'm learning to put these in, what I'm realizing is I stick these things in my eyes, and sometimes I can tell that something's wrong, but because it's in my eye, I can't quite see clearly to know what's wrong. And so I have to stand, and I have to stand up and look in a mirror with good light, and sometimes it's an eyelash has gotten stuck in there, so I have to adjust that. Sometimes when I put my contacts in and life is blurry, it's because there's just there's water, saline solution still in my eyelids, and I just need to wipe my, my eyelids off. Or sometimes, as happens often now, there's a little bubble in the contact between the lens and my eye because there's saline solution packed in there. And when that happens, it's frustrating because you can kind of see something. Sometimes it's right in front, sometimes it's off to the side. I can see something, but I don't always know what it is. So I have to look in the mirror and turn the, make sure the light's on bright and look closely. But when I do that, I can see clearly. That's what's happening when David teaches us to pray doctrine. We need to see, that, we need to see God clearly for who he is. We need to know that he has made all of us. We need to know that at the end of time, all things will be made right and true. We need to let that temper our prayers and guide us as we pray. But notice what else it does for David, beginning in verse 11. Here he prays to God directly, asking him again to do something. And what does he ask? He asks God to teach him. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. David is doing more than saying, give me the right answers, God. Let me not be proven wrong again this time. He's saying, teach me your way. Shape my life, O Lord. Teach me what it is to follow in the path that you have set out before me. Because I need your help doing that because I'm not doing very good of doing it on my own. But then notice the second part of, part of verse 11, or that last line. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. David is expressing a need for the whole of his life to be shaped by God. But he's also seeing the disintegration of his own heart. To say that my heart is not united in knowing you, God. My heart is not united in wanting to follow the way that you have set before me. So even as you show me how to do this, I need to learn to love what you have set before me. I need to learn to love this path. Because left to myself, 
I don't love being told what to do. And I don't love being told no. And I don't love it when that's all that I see. And so he prays to God, unite my heart to fear your name. David's response to knowing the truth and seeing God more clearly is to say, I need your help to do what you would have me to do. To be who you made me to be. I cannot do it on my own. I need your help. And notice the rest of his response in verse 12. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. He acknowledges, as he does throughout the psalm, that he is one dependent on this one. Roughly eight or so times throughout the psalm, he uses the word Lord, which means sovereign or master, as if to say, I am your servant, which he uses that word a few times as well. He approaches God to say, all I have is you and I need you. Because left to myself, I am lost and I am shattered. And he acknowledges his, his, his ode to give thanks to him and to worship him. And then he says in verse 13, For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. To be reminded that he has life, that he is not dead, because God himself has delivered him from the very place of death that awaits us all. He's asking for help and he's crying out. I want to tell you that I tell you this this morning because it's important for us, especially for those of us who justify our lack of prayer by saying, well, God's in charge and he's going to work it out. It doesn't matter how I pray or what I do. The reality is David calls out to this God who's in charge. He's just said, beginning in verse 8, he alone is God. There is no one else that is his equal. It's not that there is one God, that there are multiple gods all on the same plane and they have to duke it out to figure out who's going to be in charge. There is no battle. There is no contest. There is one God ruling over all of our lives. And nothing in your life, no detail, however small, the fact that you're in Kansas on September 12th, August 12th, not September 12th, August 12th at this point in time is because God has placed you here. And yet David doesn't give up. He calls out and he says, teach me. Grounded in that truth, he says, teach me what it is to live in that place where I know that you are in control and that you love me in ways that I cannot comprehend. Unite my heart to fear your name. My my very core of who I am, my very desires, need you, O Lord, to speak into them because if you do not, I am shattered. He teaches us to cry out. You may be tempted this morning To believe, as we're often told, that as long as someone has something bringing them comfort in this world, whatever they may see God to be, that it's okay. David runs to the opposite of that statement. David runs to the place of acknowledging there is one God and one alone. There is no equal for him. This is not David putting God in a box with doctrine or definitions. This is David looking to God and hearing from God, God say who he is and responding in kind. Studying theology isn't really about getting it right. It's not really about making sure you're precise and accurate for its own sake. But it has ramifications for how we live. Who God is matters to how you live your life. Are there places in your life where you feel like you've lost your way? Again, you don't have to come here having figured it all out. We gather like this to hear from the Word of God, to sing the truth of who God is and how He's at work in His world, to pray to Him, to ask Him to move in our lives in this way. Is your heart divided? Is it distracted? Ask God to help you. 
This is the invitation to do that. If you look at the last few verses of the psalm, I told you there were three things, and I want to get to the third thing now, and it's what David instructs for us to do is it instructs us to do is simply what I want to call pray the weight. Pray the weight. It cuts to the heart of our 21st century human experience, right? Because we don't want to wait. We want everything now. I could sit down after the service and I could punch some stuff into my phone and I could have a new book at my house tomorrow. I don't have to, I don't have to shower. I don't have to do anything. It'll show up on my doorstep and all I got to do is open the door and open it up. That can actually happen. That's amazing to me still and I love it. We don't have to wait. We have entertainment centers in our pockets, most of us. So we go to the post office, it's a little bit longer line, or we're at Walmart and it's a little bit longer line. We don't have to really wait. I mean, there's the self-checkout aisles, which are brilliant in and of themselves, but we don't have to wait. We don't have to sit and wonder what's gonna happen next. We can look on our phones. We can pump gas across the street from campus and there's a little TV thing there that's gonna entertain you while your, your car fills up with gas. That's amazing, it makes me wanna buy more gas so I can hear the end of the news story as it comes up. But David knows the reality of living in this world, honestly. But it involves waiting. I think where he lands at the end of this psalm is, is to do this, to, very, to pray the wait. What he does is in many ways he turns back to the things he started praying at the beginning but gives us a little bit more clarity and a little bit more in reality about what he's facing. In verse 14 he says, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life and they do not set you before them. David maybe even through the process of writing this realizes what he's up against. He gives specificity to being poor and needy. That there are people who do not know God who are standing against him, who do not like him. And David prays about this trouble, that, and he specifies the, the reality of what he's facing. They do not acknowledge the truth of God. They do not acknowledge that he alone is God. They worship something or someone or, or anything else. And David acknowledges the trouble that's before him. But notice in verse 15, the truth of God is clarified as well. He says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If there is a chorus of the Bible, it's verse 15. We heard it already in parts in verse 5. He says, You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Then look at verse 13. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You see, this is the chorus of the Bible because in Exodus 34, when Moses is speaking to God and Moses wants to give up and, and, and it sounds like God wants to give up, God calls Moses to continue to lead his people and Moses says, God, I need to see you. And God says, you can't see me, but I'm going to tell you my name. Which for God is saying, I'm going to tell you, Moses, the in the clearest way who I am. And verse 15 is a quotation of the answer of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It's a direct quotation. It's God saying, this is who I am. That I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That I am merciful and gracious. We can fall into the trap of feeling like that's an add-on to God. There have been many throughout church history, in fact, who have seen an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And the New Testament God is nice and comforting and loves us. And the Old Testament God doesn't like us very much, but the New Testament God made the Old Testament God like us, so everybody's okay. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says this is who God is. He is merciful and gracious. It is a part of who He is. It is not an add-on. It is not an afterthought. It is at the core of who He is. It is God saying this to you, my people, this is who I am. 
And David prays it here with great clarity to, rem to be reminded that this is who God is. In the New Testament, when Jesus did come and walked along the earth, John says the Word, who is Jesus, the Word that was in the beginning with God and was God. And he goes on to say that the Word walked among us, dwelt among us, and is full of grace and truth. That this, but the, the mercy and the grace and the steadfast love that is in who God is, is pictured in Jesus. And we know this. We know God because of how Jesus made him known to us by living, dying on the cross, and rising again. But there's still this waiting. And as we look at verse 16 and 17 and finish up the song, we hear him pray familiar words again. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your main servant, maidservant. Again, David needs strength to keep existing, to keep going. And even in verse 17, he says, Show me a sign of your favor, that those who have seen me, those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. David is acknowledging the help and the reality of who God is and how he's acted in his life. And yet the psalm never resolves itself fully. David still is at the end is praying for strength and for help. That God would be gracious to him. That God would smile upon him. David knows who God is. And what he models for us is entering into prayer based on things we already know to be true. How often in conversations do we find ourselves, yeah, I know that part. Go to the next thing that I don't know and tell me what happened then. because I, I know this other part. We do that all the time. And yet what David models for us is resting in the truth of who God is and finding comfort there and realizing, I need to know this more. I need to know this more fully. And I'm going to speak to God about who he is, not because I've forgotten or not because he's forgotten, but because I need to know that it's true and that it's real. Beloved, our lives are waiting. It's what it is to be human. Because as fast as Amazon can deliver, as fast as the shortest checkout lane could go, as fun as my phone can, can be at, at times, my life is full of waiting. Pray the dilemma. Pray the doctrine. But pray the wait. Bring that to God and ask Him for relief. Ask Him for help. Ask Him to help you see more clearly what is before you and find hope and joy there. That's what David models for us. He doesn't say fix it. He doesn't say life is going to be grand. He says, I know it's hard. And he invites us to pray that to the Lord. Last fall, a, a student sort of dragged me to a movie called Three Billboards from in, Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Not going to recommend it to you as a whole. Some of you might be extremely irritated with me if you went and saw it because, based on my recommendation. So let's make that clear. It was a fascinating movie about a woman whose, whose daughter was killed brutally. And the mom is searching for justice. And she's not getting it. And you meet the weirdest people you've ever seen on the screen interact with each other in, in somewhat real ways, but it's really bizarre the way that it unfolds. And you can see in almost every scene she's in the mom's pain and anguish and hurt. And you see the, the, the lengths to which she goes to try to make things right for her, for her daughter who's no, with her, no longer with her. And it just doesn't happen. And at one point in the movie, she, there's kind of a voiceover that she gives, and she says this, still no arrest. How come I wonder, how come I wonder, 
because there ain't no God and the whole world's empty and it doesn't matter what we do to each other. I hope not. She looks at her life. She looks at the lack of justice, the lack of being heard, the lack of truth, the lack of faithfulness, the, the destruction that's happening all around her. And all she can say is, I don't see God. And it doesn't seem like he's there. It doesn't seem to matter what we do to each other. But then that last phrase is, I hope that that's not the way that it is. And that's what she tries to cling to. You may feel some of that this morning. It may be rank injustice that you don't ever talk about. Or it may be small things that linger and hurt and still make you wonder and bring this dilemma before your eyes. We long for a resolution in life that hasn't come yet. All of us know that because death is a reality, because cancer is a reality, because divorce is a reality, because abuse is a reality, because corruption is a reality. We know, this, we know the fact that resolution hasn't come. But what David invites us to, what the Bible invites us to, is to look at Jesus, the picture of God's, God's abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness for his people, to look at him and to face the dilemma without the answer, to believe the doctrines that may confuse us, and to truly wait for the completion that is indeed promised. Because the end of the Bible is that one day Jesus will come again and make all things new. Beloved, I invite you to run to your Father. Let's do that now. Jesus, most of life, if not all of it, feels incomplete and, and always will in some level. Father, I pray that our confusion, our frustration, our hurt, our longing, I pray that that would not keep us from you, but that it would drive us to you, to know the life that we have in you, to know that there is a hope that is not simply guesswork, but that is true life. So we continue in worship. Help us to find that in you, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen.